0: Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Hall. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment of both the surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human.
1: Dr. Titor Granchorov is a bariatric surgeon at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Granchorov is world-renowned for his work on the Aura Black Box, a platform that allows for immense capture and analytics of operative data. We asked Dr. Granchorov about what it took to develop the Aura Black Box, not just technologically, but culturally and institutionally. You can find out more about the Aura Black Box at surgicalsafety.com and check out all the links in our show notes.
2: I was uh, born in Bulgaria, I moved to Denmark and did my training surgical training in uh, the University of Copenhagen, I did my PhD there, Uh, then uh, spent uh, uh, a year and a half a couple years in Pittsburgh, and I've been in Toronto for since uh, end of 2006 so it will be close to 15 years uh, later this year, so Thank you. I, I, I've seen a lot of different uh, educational systems. I've seen various uh, healthcare systems and uh, I always tell residents and fellows, uh, my advice to you is uh, look for some diversity and experience. Uh, look for uh, different ways of doing things and uh, that's how you build your own style.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about on the podcast about how having that diversity of experience really does make a difference and broaden your horizon. If there are a few things that you could kind of pinpoint as being different, let's say between your training in Copenhagen and, and the North American system, could you highlight some of those differences?
2: Uh, so it's, uh, I think probably, and, I, and pr- and probably things have changed a lot in, uh, in Copenhagen since I left. Uh, but, uh, there was a lot of independence. There was a lot of uh, uh, opportunities to uh, make decisions uh, independently and execute them independently. Uh, I think that was uh, that was uh, that was important. And I think that's how you grow as a as an individual and as a surgeon, rather than close uh, supervision uh, that I saw a lot uh, once I came here. But you know, at the same time. Uh, The amount of volume, the amount that the the massive experience uh, our residents here in Toronto and throughout North America get uh, throughout their education, I think it's it's phenomenal. So uh, there are good and bad things with every system. Uh, I think uh, overall we're lucky in North America. I think a lot of the residents in Europe or in Denmark are also lucky. Uh, But uh, the perfect place doesn't exist. So that's why I say uh, go different places, see a lot of things that are good, and see you'll see a lot of things that are not so good. Uh, but when when you finally settle uh, and you want to build your own environment and contribute to a certain system, that's how we become better contributors, and how and that's how we can uh, make a place better by by uh, by adopting the good things and trying to avoid the bad things.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's all about bursting your bubble and your dogma, challenging yes. dogma. Which yes. you know that's sort of a theme of, of all the work that you've done is is challenging dogma and and not deciding that whatever whatever we do is is the the only way and the right way of doing things. So yes, think,
2: no, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, I completely agree with that.
1: You know, um, it we're very lucky, obviously, in Canada to have you in Toronto. How did you actually end up coming um, from kind of Pittsburgh uh, to Toronto?
2: You know, I, uh, uh, one of the, the basic principles for me uh, in life, in everything I do, both personal and professional, has been if there is an opportunity that presents itself, uh, never say no to, uh, to an opportunity. So uh, I clearly remember uh, when I came to Toronto for the first time in 2001. Uh, and I, I visited uh, Dr. Resnick, uh, I've been a, a follower of his work, and he's inspired me a lot through, uh, throughout my career. So I visited him in two, 2001, uh, and, uh, and, and it was one November day, uh, Toronto was great, it was raining, it was cold, uh, and I thought, oh, wow, I, I, I can't wait to leave, I, 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 it wasn't a great experience. Uh, and then in 2006, uh, I had another conversation with uh, with Dr. Resnick, and uh, there was an opportunity to join the faculty here at U of T, and he said, why don't you come and visit us uh, in Toronto? And it was amazing. It was, uh, I think, June or July. Um, uh, it was during World Cup of Soccer. Uh, the city was amazing. You can see all the flags, all the uh, diverse people uh, with different backgrounds celebrating their soccer teams, and I thought this this is the best place in, in the world. So that was that was the summer. By November, uh, my entire family was was in Toronto, and uh, it wasn't the plan. But uh, but uh, it uh, that's how sometimes life offers you an opportunity, and as long as you keep an open mind and uh, and and ready to take challenges, uh, uh, a lot of good things are going to happen. So. Uh, but being in Toronto has been a, a tremendous experience uh, for both me and and my family, and uh, uh, I think I I learned a lot. Uh, I grew a lot as a as a surgeon, as a teacher, as a uh, as an academic. Uh, so uh, I, I I feel home here now.
0: You know, I think that's such a great story, and it's an important message too that we hear a lot on the podcast with with a lot of different really successful people. Is sometimes. You know the opportunities that come your way maybe are, are sometimes right right in front of you and you should take each one of them and and uh, and give it real thought. Hey,
2: absolutely. And you know it it's that's what I I, and I always tell the, the the residents, the fellows, the research uh, uh, group around me is uh, that life will open you will uh, will uh, will offer you opportunities. When you see a good opportunity, don't wait for a better one. Grab it and make the best out of it. Uh, it's help. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, I was last week I was in California and uh, I I had a uh, a coffee at a place called Join the Juice. Uh, maybe some of you uh, have seen it or not. Uh, Join the Juice uh, started its first place in uh, uh, in Copenhagen. I, I used to go there after I was on call uh, to grab a juice or a coffee. Then in the past couple of years they kind of exploded, primarily in the in the New York City area and Silicon Valley. So I, I was I had a coffee. Uh, Last week, uh, and was remembering the days when I was a resident after uh, twenty-four hours on call, and uh, there was a big slogan on on John the Juice, and it said, uh, "When uh, when life offers you strawberries, take them and make a power shake." Uh, so, uh, I it, uh, <laughs> love it. It's, uh, it was uh, uh, so it 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 it. it life will always offer us great opportunities as professionals and individuals <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, we just need to keep an open mind and uh, and take advantage of those because then that then good things are going to happen if we always wait for a secure choice a better option uh you know then uh, then th- there's nothing worse than looking back and saying you know i i had this opportunity i didn't take advantage and it never came back so uh, that's very hard to live with well if you take an opportunity and even though it, it turns out to be the wrong one and uh, you failed you still learn a lot and I still think that you get better, you become a better person and a better professional
0: uh, that that's great advice particularly for you know pr- prototypically conservative, Surgeons, right? That's yes. uh, a hard thing to do, but you're you're right. We have to keep that in mind for sure. You, you know, yeah. your your background, is, as Amir talked about, is is so uh, broad and so varied. I mean, I remember the you first came onto our radar here in Calgary with regard to surgical education and virtual simulation. I'm curious if you could sort of start us there and walk us into your or black box and define for our audience uh, what that is how it works and and what was the inspiration or the genesis of it
2: yeah so yeah happy to do that you know i I was chatting just before we started the podcast with amir and he was telling me that uh, he uh, uh, since he joined the fellowship has started recording his cases and uh, i I hope we'll have the opportunity to talk a little bit more about your experience but uh, i clearly remember when I recorded my first case and I was I think I was PGY2 uh, very early in my career uh, and I did a lab calling uh, and at that point I recorded on a VHS tape I don't know whether I still keep this tape I got to look in my basement uh, but uh, you know it was uh, when I was in the OR. I, I was so uh, in, uh, excited I did this uh, cholecystectomy. Uh, alone with a little bit of supervision, I felt that nobody in the world could could do better corpectomy than I did that day. Uh, I, I, it was the, it was one of the best days of my life. Uh, I recorded on the VHS tape and I watched it later on uh, on the, uh, uh, the the TV, uh, and it looked terrible. It was it was it was very humbling to see how slow I was, how uncoordinated my movements were. Uh, I could see things when I was watching the video that I couldn't believe I didn't see while I was doing the case. And, and uh, since that day, I've recorded every single case in my career. Uh, and th- there were some cases when maybe it's some something malfunctioned, but I've had hundreds and hundreds of, of procedures recorded. Uh, and uh, in, especially in the early phase of my of my development, I uh, this made a, a, a huge impact. Uh, the the ability uh, to review your performance and see things that you you miss during well, while you're in the middle of the action, which is inevitable. Uh, so uh, later on, when I started my research on uh, performance measurement in uh, in surgery. I started in 1999, 2000. I completed my my PhD in 2003, so many years ago. Uh, I I, I was uh, I was really fascinated by the huge variability in performance in a simulated environment, in a virtual reality environment. uh, And uh, later on, we started measuring outcomes through Nesquip and other measures. So we, we found significant variability in outcomes. Uh, and I always wanted to understand what were the factors that contribute to that variability. So obviously, uh, performance is one, ability is one thing, uh, uh, performance is something else. And then understanding what, uh, and again, performance can be measured using many different frameworks. It could be technical performance, non-technical um, and, and other aspects. Uh, so. Uh, when we started studying technical performance, we saw variability between surgeons, but also within the same surgeon. Then we looked at non-technical uh, performance on a team level and we found that that's very important. Who is with you in the operating room matters. Who, the, who your assistant is, who the scrap tech is, who the circulating nurse, who the anesthesiologist. So that, that, the, that the performance on a team level matters. The technology we use in the operating room matters, distractions matter. So uh, we understood the more and more we dig into that, we found that this is a fascinating, but also very, very complex area. So in order to study these dependencies, in in order to study the relationship between various factors that would influence our performance, uh, we we understood that we need to capture a significant amount of data. Uh, And uh, uh, we couldn't do that with procedural video alone. Uh, so that's why the idea of the first generation of the black box uh, uh, came and initially we found a lot of a lot of technological challenges that we kind of over overcame throughout uh, the the experience but we found also massive cultural challenges uh, which is uh, which is one of these things that are are difficult to solve but also very uh, a really fascinating task and and i think this cultural transformation in our profession uh, is critical if we want to, to improve. So, so we learned a lot uh, uh, through this process. And then obviously being here in Toronto with access to great engineers, computer scientists, human factors, experts, designers uh, helped us uh, uh, learn a lot. And uh, I think we, we always look back and wish we had done things faster uh, but uh, I think we're in good position now to one day soon change the way we practice surgery.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I love about your body of research is that you've really taken each of those kind of elements and problems that you just described and uh, broken it down and uh, really tried to dig deep into all those. Like, for example, even the, the whole idea of, you know, I love this, this image of you watching your video as a PGY2, all excited, like, oh, I did the the best lap coley possible. And then afterwards, looking back on it and thinking, oh, shucks, that wasn't actually that good. Um, And you've done some like actual quantitative um, data about this exact topic. You know, two of the studies that I can think of are, you know, this one where you went back and looked at various needle injuries and how those were underreported and another where you actually asked um surgeons and uh, fellows and residents uh to recall if there are any misadventures or or uh, uh adverse events during a case and they really could not recall anything uh significant or in, in, in an inaccurate sort of way can you talk a little bit about that line of uh, of research yeah it's uh, it
2: is surprising but at the same time not that surprising uh, i'm sure that you uh i mean the the morbidity and mortality meeting is uh, one of the foundational qi interventions in in our practice so uh, you know it's it, the thought is amazing we uh, we need to learn from our mistakes we need to understand that if if a patient suffers a complication we need to see is there something that went it wrong is there something that we could do better next time but the reality is that modern uh, Mobility and mortality, uh, or they've always been like that, uh, are turned very quickly into discussions about anecdotal experience of the surgeon in the room or literature review. Uh, but I think it, all of us will agree that uh, if that is very difficult to remember what happened in the operating room a week or two weeks uh, prior to that uh, event. So, so we kind of knew that, but we wanted to verify that. So, uh, so that's why we, we started uh, a number of cases. We asked the surgical team to tell us at the end of the case uh, was this case perfect, or did you notice any adverse events? Um, And actually the majority of the cases, they felt that it went perfect uh regardless of whether they were adverse events or not and actually like when i look back in my career i don't think i have ever dictated a non-perfect or not uh it's uh it, it's which uh, which uh i am sure that uh, i'm sure we've had some perfect uh, procedures once uh, in a while but usually there is something there is always something to do better uh, so, uh, so we wanted to verify it. So, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a study design, we asked systematically individuals. They didn't notice anything unusual. They weren't able to classify it very well at the end of the procedure. And a week later, when we asked them again about the same procedure, and these were some procedures with high severity interoperative events there were absolutely nothing that they could remember about this event so it, it kind of showed that uh, that it's very very difficult to have a meaningful conversation at a morbidity and mortality meeting uh, about what could be improved intraoperatively so that's why we have it kind of verified again that uh we we can do better than that the second uh, example you gave was again the 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 uh, reporting near misses uh and using uh existing data sources which is the electronic patient records to do research or to extract some data uh, because a lot of the, the current initiatives quality improvement initiatives are based on data that's been reported in the electronic patient record. and we found that that data is not great it's uh, what we report is often not uh, what really happened and again uh, there are a lot of there is a lot of work around this concept of uh, work done versus work imagined uh, and there is always some discrepancy of, of uh, between these two. Uh, and uh, again, once again, showed that in order to uh, get an accurate image uh, of, uh, of the OR environment, uh, and most importantly, uh, understand and study what we did right and wrong. Uh, we can't rely on existing data sources. We need to create high quality uh, data streams. And this is what we do with with our black box. We we want to eliminate this bias, recall bias and other biases in our perception of our performance. We want to replace those with objective uh, image or uh, objective evaluation of everything that happened in the operating room and only then uh, we can design meaningful, uh, uh, actionable, uh, interventions, individualized interventions, uh, that could make, help us, uh, help us improve. So, uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it, that when we do that, then we can shift this traditional, uh, approach, uh, in surgical education and surgical quality improvement, which is based on reactive measures. Uh, Let's wait for something bad to happen and let's study it, let's do root cause analysis, let's wait uh, through uh, the uh, Nesquip uh, data sources to tell us that we are a statistically significant outlier six to nine months after things have happened, and replace that with something proactive, uh, something that will show us trends, that will show us uh, safety threats uh, before some patient has been harmed, Uh, and then develop effective mitigation strategies. So so I think this shift from reactive to proactive, we've seen it in other high-risk industries. We've seen it in aviation, we've seen it in nuclear, we've seen it in oil industry. Uh, we're still the professional sports. Uh, it hasn't happened in, in surgery yet, uh, but uh, I firmly believe that uh, as we continue to grow this uh, awareness and we continue to uh, Uh, get more comfortable with error and get more comfortable with performance assessment and get more comfortable with transparency Uh, in the operating room, I think I still believe that one day uh, this will become a reality in uh, surgery and hopefully within my professional lifetime. You know, I really like how you frame that. And it's, it is,
0: I think, important in terms of you know opening folks mind and moving forward to use examples in other industries i mean i think of a formula one team and how they break oh. down a simple pit stop to save you know 0.01 seconds it's it's remarkable right the the quality improvement cycles that that go into that it's uh not only audio and video of course but it's it's a lot more than that i i'm curious from a purely um mechanical point of view what equipment are you using for the black box and and specifically the audio side and the video side and then that's clearly a, an enormous amount of data what, how do you go about storing that and and what's that process like
2: yeah so uh so the audio video is uh, obviously one of the key components of the uh, or black box data but not the only one so uh, we uh with our black box, we, we capture procedural video, we capture room video, we capture audio, we capture um, physiological data, we capture device data and, and a bunch of other sensors. Uh, for example, wearable technology that can help us quantify stress, quantify fatigue and so on. So uh, you're absolutely right. This is a massive amount of structured and unstructured data. Uh, and uh, uh the the, the video uh, is a very powerful data source and so is the audio uh we once we uh, uh, but it it the, the the challenge is how can we extract meaningful information out of that hours and hours uh, of video and this is where we've 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 focused for a very very long time and we've done a lot of errors and we've learned from the, from those errors but we're at the point now that we can extract, an accurate digital footprint from, from uh, uh, this massive amount of data. So uh, after we've done that, we actually don't need the raw video anymore. We, we've, we've extracted the story, we've extracted the learning points. Uh, at that point, we we actually get rid of the video. We, we destroy the video after after 30 days. Uh, For many reasons, but one of the reasons is uh, we can't we it's it's uh, it's uh, uh, Too much to store and second is uh, it's uh, too difficult to use it for anything meaningful uh, Later on. Well, maybe we could use it for some more research But at this point we extract things that we can learn. We don't need to store things where where everything is going on autopilot but if there are some segments of the video with lots of with high educational value uh, we store those and then we use it to to enhance education and to, to improve education but but the, the large amounts of uh, raw video audio video visual data, I don't think that uh, is humanly possible to uh, review and definitely adds a lot of costs if we want to store so so we we don't do that. Yeah, that makes that makes total
0: sense uh, when you describe it. Th- thank you. I'm curious. You, you know, you sort of touched on it just a little bit earlier. Um, you didn't use the word resistance, but I, maybe I would. You know, I think that there is certainly. Uh, my sense is resistance, not only in our local operating rooms, but really across the board, for some of the you know the conceptual concepts that are inherent, in you and I believe, and of course Amir does, important. in in, in your black box and and what that really represents and how it's delivered I'm curious you know as you roll it out into a new hospital or a new OR or with new surgeons how do you frame it how do you engage them and involve them and convince them and um, that's the surgeon side I'm also curious on the patient side like is this would this be typically something that would require consent from a patient to record or do we treat it just like we do when we record a lap a, a coli uh per se may not actually explicitly talk about that
2: yeah so uh so 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 that's a great question and, and uh, i think there is there is actually i i clearly remember first time i was presenting this uh this concept uh at a conference um and uh i remember uh, there was a, so it was a full room and there was a surgeon who got up and said hey um you know, I have been practicing for 20 years. There is nothing I can learn anymore. I uh, I I I I don't need uh, video. I don't need data. Uh, I've I've seen it all. Uh, and this is the worst idea that uh, someone could ever come up with. <laughs> so I I clearly that was the first comment after my uh, presentation. Uh, and and he said, I hope you fail with that initiative. Uh, yeah. So, wow. Uh, it's, uh, is, Unbelievable. Uh, it's, which is which is I thought uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's good and bad. I mean, obviously, uh, that's not the re- response I was uh, hoping for, uh, but at the same time, uh, it is a natural response. You know, we we in surgery. Uh, we've been practicing in the OR, and the OR. We've turned the OR into a secretive environment. Uh, we, as surgeons, uh, have started believing over the years that this is our own personal space, and nobody has right to uh, uh, enter that space other than ourselves. Uh, we, as surgeons, have used, have created these false expectations, and patients have been part of that. 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 Uh, we, that our goal is perfection. We hear it once once in a while. Uh, we, once in a while, we hear this. I when I see these slogans, our goal of zero errors, our goal of hundred percent success, uh, and and that's all uh, an illusion. It's all false expectations. And as long as we maintain these expectations, we will never be able to improve. If we maintain these expectations to ourselves. Uh, and let our patients believe that these expectations are realistic, we failed in this uh, uh, journey to to improve. Uh, This journey starts with the recognition that we as humans will fail. It's inevitable. We will make errors uh, and we need to to learn to tolerate these errors. We learn because only then we'll be able to study them. uh, We'll be able to learn from them uh, and uh, and we'll be able to create an environment that that brings this psychological safety and supportive environment. So so I think uh, there are many reasons why there is resistance. There are many reasons why there is an anxiety, and with anything new, uh, you know that that's a healthy that's a healthy debate. That's a that, that's a good discussion uh, to uh, bring to bring down these barriers and to and which are purely cultural. They're not technological, they're not scientific, they're cultural, they're emotional, uh, and uh, they're natural. So, so uh, I think uh, when we talk about it, and especially in a room with uh, doctors, nurses, uh, uh, and, and other people who participate, who are p- part of the surgical team in the operating room, I think it's important to remember why we are all there. Uh, and uh, we're there because of the patient. Uh, And we will be patients one day as well, so uh, it's uh, I think it's uh, uh, everything we do there should be directed towards patients and we should, we have an obligation, uh, not for perfection, but we have an obligation to make sure that uh, when errors happen, when something bad adverse events happen, which is the natural, uh, uh, it's, it's a natural event in anything we do as humans. Uh, Our obligation is to learn from it. Our obligation is to make the system better, uh, whether through education or quality improvement or other modern measures like automation, computerization, and forcing functions and so on. It's our obligation to make this less likely in the future. It's our obligation to build the system that makes it easy to do the right thing and difficult the wrong thing. Uh, And if something goes wrong, it's never the individual, the individual error is never the root cause of something going wrong. Uh, it's usually a systemic factors. So it's usually educational system or design of Dior or, uh, or institutional uh, culture. Uh, so so uh, we, we need to recognize that. And I think uh, if we look at it that way, uh, I think we've suddenly created a better environment, supportive environment, psychologically safe environment, uh, in the learning environment, so uh, so I think uh, I think uh, that's how uh, we usually approach it. It's, it's uh, we 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 need to do the right thing for the patients. We need to do the right thing for our profession, but at the same time, we also need to respect the privacy and confidentiality of every single practitioner in the room. We need to understand that for this initiative or any initiative like that to be successful, the foundational principle has to be confidential and non-punitive process uh, so uh, uh, in uh, hospitals or organizations that adopt that approach uh, will be a high performance organization will continue to improve and organizations that adopt the opposite which is blame shame uh, and uh, uh, individual uh, seeking for individual errors uh, will be uh, a poor performers. and uh, and i can tell you that now when we've been implementing black box throughout multiple organizations in uh, in us canada and western europe we can clearly see the the massive variability in uh, in culture the massive variability in openness transparency uh, and uh, and attitude towards uh, towards safety and uh, i can i can quickly tell you where i'm I'd be excited to work in what environment. I'd be excited to work in. And, and I think, and I think, I think all of us know that. I think all of us have been in places where uh, we've observed this uh, backwards culture of authority, of uh, uh, hierarchy, uh, of hierarchical uh, 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 structure, uh, and as opposed to flat, supportive, uh, and uh, and. Uh, and uh, uh, well-led uh, uh, organizations. So, so I think uh, I think we'll see a lot of uh, growth in uh, in uh, from a cultural point of view in uh, in our ORs. uh And uh, I think uh, I think the, I can clearly see that the new generation adapts uh, or uh, adopts these principles much easier. And it 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 makes me hopeful that uh, that uh, we'll see. Uh, changes in the way we practice surgery and and will make the ORs much more fun, uh, much more supportive, but also much safer than they are today.
1: I want to come back to all the points that you made because, uh, you know, uh, in a second, because I think fundamentally one of the cool things about any new technology or technique that really has the potential to change things is that it's not just, it's not about like some piece of technology or some tool or some, you know, like even when we talk about the OR checklist, I think, if we really take a step back, it's not the checklist per se that is what has changed or what led to that four percent mortality difference that they showed in that uh, uh, in that in- initial paper in New England Journal or one 1- percent mortality rather, but I think it's like what it does under the hood, so to speak, that it, it it changes the culture dynamics in the operating room such that you know that the checklist allowed people to actually speak up, it allowed the nurse to speak up, and so when you're, you introduce this idea of recording all the, the all the operative data, it changes the culture from being that of like, oh, it must have been the surgeon's fault to, to be taking a much more nuanced picture. Uh, so I want to come back to that in a second. But before we move on from the technical side I wanted to t- put a pin in the the open recording so you know we, we had a little bit of a discussion a few months back I think now about the challenges of recording open surgeries uh, and particularly the video around that um, you know I I was asking people you um, what what's the best modality for recording open cases? You know, I'm doing my colorectal fellowship and there's still a number of cases that happen in an open fashion. And I was looking around and, you know, trying to figure out what, what camera would work best. And, and none of them work well. You know, when you're looking down in a pelvis, uh, even with the head-mounted camera that I have currently that kind of sits over your ear, you don't see the details of what's happening in the pelvis because, I mean, just the way we're standing is our, our eyes are looking another way, but our head is pointed a, a different way. And so you kind of miss all those nuances. Can you talk a little bit about Kind of overcoming that challenge
2: yeah so that's a massive challenge in 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 uh, in open surgery capturing the procedural video (laughs) have you have you watched some of the video footage on a head mounted camera
1: well i've watched Uh, my own data it's uh it's 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 good for like the parts where you're you're looking right at the field but anytime your eyes are slightly off in a, a different slightly different trajectory than your head uh, Than the axis yes. of your head, then it's very difficult. Like you know, the classic uh, that that I pointed out was that this pelvic dissection, when you're doing the TME, and you can't re- you can't see any of the nuances there.
2: Yeah, so uh, I've I've watched some of it, and it it makes me sick uh, to watch uh, to watch the the camera moving uh, all the time, and uh, it it's obviously very very difficult to. Uh, do that at scale. So uh, we, we've, uh, we've done a bunch of work in that area uh, and we've experimented with everything out there with GoPro and uh, head-mounted and, uh, and uh, camera in the light. Camera in the light is not bad uh, in general uh, but it, well, uh, in certain cases like um, in, uh, in the pelvis or, or narrow spa- deep narrow spaces it's usually very, very difficult to capture. So, um, uh, one of our, one of the, the residents, the surgeon scientists uh, in our lab, uh, Thomas Son, did some, he actually did his master thesis on, on developing a modern uh, video capture system for, for uh, open surgery. So, he, he designed, he built it himself, uh, and it uh, utilizes some of the gimbal technology used in drones uh, it stabilizes, it always keeps in focus, and he worked closely with our AI group to develop an algorithm that uh, that, that uh, directs the camera always to focus on surgeon's hands and surgeon's instruments. So uh, the initial uh, work and the initial experiments with that uh, prototype were fascinating, uh, and we, now we have uh, um, another uh, student, uh, a, a PhD student in our lab uh, um, taking that further and making it more scalable and uh, and uh, as and one of the, the, the feats in the old black box uh, uh, platform technology. So uh, we've got, uh, we reviewed everything on the market. None of it was good enough. Uh, so we designed our own. There is still some time before uh, we move it from prototype to production, uh, but, uh, but uh, I know that that will be a problem that will be solved fairly soon.
1: You know, I think this highlights, again, um, what a multidisciplinary kind of approach you have to take to this. It's not just about, you know, putting a camera on someone's head. It's, you know, put it, making a, a design that works ergonomically with the surgeon. It's, it's the video capture, the gimbal, the, the, you know, the AI component of it. So clearly you had to put together a team that's very unlike a lot of other typical research teams that are found in healthcare systems or that typically surgeons work with. How did you kind of assemble this multidisciplinary team and what has that experience been like? It has been fascinating.
2: And it's it's really the key for, uh, you know, the, to a certain extent, some of the success stories we've built throughout the years, but also uh, the, the experience of having people around the table uh, and the table who uh, think different, who use it, different methodologies who express themselves differently is fascinating. You know, in in surgery, we've been trying for a very, very long time to solve complex problems just just by ourselves. Uh, But with a bunch of surgeons sitting around the table and trying to solve, to find solutions using the same methods, using the same thinking that we've been using for decades. Uh, And uh, that's not where the growth and the, the real solutions are going to come from. The growth and real solutions are going to come uh, if we bring diverse group of people with diverse backgrounds, with diverse experiences to solve a complex problem using uh, uh, modern methodologies that they are uh, familiar with. So so for us, uh, it was fascinating when we started bringing people from uh, with design background <laughs> They brainstorm in a different way than we brainstorm. It was fascinating when we brought all people with biomedical engineering or computer science or data science background. But bringing all these people in the same room uh, uh, at the same time is really has really been fascinating, and uh, it's one of my favorite things that I kind of missed uh, during COVID. Uh, we, there was a time where we couldn't bring together, and I think. We found that we could collaborate uh, remotely, but I think it it impacted a little bit our ability to innovate. I still don't believe that uh, we can innovate effectively uh, uh, through Zoom. I, I I I don't think we can schedule. Let's innovate. Let's innovate tomorrow at uh, between one and two. It it comes spontaneously. It comes uh, by bringing uh, a bunch of people in the same room around an empty whiteboard. Uh, so, uh, so I think uh, I, I think uh, it's uh, it is critical if we want to make uh, to advance our field uh, that uh, we uh, we bring uh, individuals with uh, with various backgrounds because these are complex questions they can't be solved by uh, by a single professional group.
0: I'm curious, in particular, have you had any medical legal issues that surround the use of the black box? And, and that's part one. And part two is, um, it, it's sort of, the, the, I guess it's the chicken or the egg question. Do you think that being recorded, knowing you're being recorded, changes the way that you interact in an environment uh, like the operating room and maybe even how you operate?
2: Mm-hmm. So these are both great questions. So uh, I knew that the, the medical legal question has to come up. Uh, it always does. Uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's fair. Uh, so uh, we've designed even before we launched it uh, and we launched in 2014, we spent a very long time designing a process uh, that will help us you get uh, uh, take advantage of the of the the benefits of, of video and data without and using that for constructive purposes to get better and to improve and uh, uh, eliminate the risks. Of feeding uh, the the uh, malpractice litigation industry, so uh, the process is very robust. The process uses various AI algorithms that de-identify uh, uh, the data. Uh, that uh, you know uh, there is a time bomb in the in the raw audio video file that uh, expires at uh, thirty days. So uh, uh, it's uh, and and. The reality is that we, we really don't care. The principle is we, we don't care uh, who the surgeon was, who the nurse was, who the patient was. We, we want to know what happened and how we can make sure that it doesn't happen again. So, uh, so uh, we've, uh, we've uh, created a process. We've introduced technologies to that securitize, that they identify uh, uh, the data. Uh, and uh, we've launched in 2014. We've never had any uh, any challenges, uh, and uh, you know we we see now tremendous growth uh, throughout throughout the U.S. And, and as you know, U.S. the the malpractice litigation industry is much uh, at a different level compared with anywhere else in the world. Uh, but everywhere we work, uh, it is uh, it it is uh, is is a challenge. It it is a challenge that we've identified, we've addressed, uh, and that doesn't allow uh, or makes it extremely impossible uh, to uh, use something like this for destructive purposes against our profession. The second question about uh, the how does uh, data capture in the operating room impact our behavior? Uh, or which is also known as the Hawthorne effect, uh, is, uh, is well studied in, uh, in healthcare, is well studied in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in medicine and in surgery. We actually published a meta-analysis uh, a year or two ago, and we were hoping in the beginning that if people know that uh, data is captured, they will behave much better, that they will perform much better. The reality is, and this, this demonstrates a number of studies, uh, and this is the conclusion of the meta-analysis that uh, the Hawthorne effect in healthcare is very short-lived. Uh, in an in a environment like uh, the OR with the Black Box, which is non-intrusive, if you don't see it, uh, people forget about it after 10 to 15 minutes and uh, and uh, it, uh, they're, they're back to normal behavior and uh, uh, it, it doesn't really, we haven't found it to impact our behavior decisions or, or communication in the OR. Uh, mm-hmm. so which is pretty consistent with with what other researchers have found
1: that's so funny i mean you'd think that everyone would just you know totally change their behavior and completely change the way that they you know like when when we were thinking of these questions you know dr ball and i were thinking you know well maybe you know if i like i if you felt like you were being recorded all the time maybe you know you wouldn't joke the same way or you wouldn't have that kind of natural interaction and maybe that would make the operating room a very kind of stifled environment because i think many of us enjoy that aspect of being in the OR. like you're with your you got your tunes on you you're, you're with your friends your nurse the, the nurses the anesthetist who are hopefully hopefully are your friends and uh you know maybe feeling like you're being recorded wouldn't allow that natural environment but i guess it's kind of good and bad that uh, people don't <laughs> change their behavior whether they're being recorded or not
2: yeah i joke exactly the same way i listen to the same music i uh uh it, it's, uh it doesn't really, I actually don't think about it when, uh, when I practice surgery and I've been capturing all my procedures since 2014 using the, the old black box.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the, the interesting things that you obviously published on and, and that I noticed when I started recording with my head mounted camera is that the head, you know, I didn't even realize this, but the, the head mounted camera has an, uh, picks up the noise, right? Like a, of Like just people talking. And one of the things you realize is just how much noise there is in the operating room. Um, and it's kind of shocking uh, that we are able to do anything or concentrate on anything. Um, and, and you've done a number of studies that kind of show how much distractions there are in the operating room. There are a ton of
2: distractions and, you know, I've, I've and uh, you know, I've seen cases where we've had uh, 15, 16 people in the room uh, and uh, it, it, it's in in a a uh, low risk uh, routine procedure, uh, probably the impact is not gonna be that significant. But in a critical situation that requires the maximum of your cognitive capacity, and it requires uh, communication and team execution on a very high level, this becomes the difference between success and failure. We've also found that uh, distractions impact uh, people with different experience differently. So a highly experienced surgeon do- doing a routine task uh, may not be a subject to, uh, you know, it, it may not be that influenced by distractions versus somebody, a trainee who is doing a task for the first time or uh, is still within the learning curve uh, and uses has mobilized the maximum of their cognitive capacity to execute that task. Uh, distraction uh, uh, could be very very uh, disrupting on on performance
1: that so that the distraction piece was certainly very surprising to me when I in my limited kind of experience now recording some of my own cases in fellowship um, what are, are there any other unexpected things that you've noticed from doing this project things that you did not expect to find from from recording uh, for from doing the black box uh, that have come out from just the sheer amount of data that, that has come through.'ve
2: uh, we've, we've seen a, a bunch of uh, findings or could that often confirm our uh, intuitive feeling. Uh, you know So wh- one thing is that one, we not too long ago uh, published some work on the impact of stress. Uh, so st- we know that stress generally assume that stress is not good. Uh, and uh, well-being, good supportive environment is a good thing. But now we showed that uh, that has a direct impact on our performance and uh, some of the intermediate safety outcomes like adverse events. We found that the risk of of an adverse event uh, that could potentially compromise patient safety increases with 60-70% if the patient experiences uh, uh, stress. And has uh, objective physiological evidence on uh, of stress. So, so uh, uh, it uh, a lot of these things, uh, the, the the distractions, the, the 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 impact of stress has uh, confirmed some of these things that we intuitively knew. But uh, it once you see it, once you see the evidence, you can't unsee it. And it and it changed the way uh, I lead in the OR, the way I interact with people in the OR, because I know uh, that if they don't feel uh, comfortable, if they don't feel uh, supported, uh, they will underperform. And at the, ed- at the end of the day, that will impact all of us. If one of us underperforms, uh, that uh, doesn't benefit uh, uh, the, the care of the patient, uh, who is the reason why why we are all there.
1: You know, Dr. Grantroff, we had a, a recently on the podcast J.C. Alverdi, uh, who, whose name you may have heard of. He's a he's a surgeon out of Chicago, and he recently gave the Norman Nigro Lectureship at um, ASCRS. And so, one of the things he talked about, just like just like you talked about, is that you know, M M&M and M rounds are the are where we go to learn from the ignorance of experts. You know, in other words, we have all these people talking about things. You know, really senior people who have seen it all. Uh, and sort of infer where complications may have happened may, or they may not have happened. But we really don't know. And as we talked about sort of at the top of the show, uh, our recall of these events is not very good. So I, I know that I think at St. Mike's, you had started to I- incorporate video review as part of the m MMM m rounds. I'm curious if you actually found, have found things that you wouldn't have otherwise picked up uh, is sort of the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, you know, one of the things JC already did is where he showed two groups of surgeons, um, two videos. And the, in the first video, he showed, you know, that this, is, this anastomosis leaked and asked them to critique the creation of the anastomosis. And they said, well, there was this problem, that problem, this problem. And the second video, he said, this anastomosis didn't leak. Tell me what went right. And they said, well, this was much better. And this was much better. And you know, the, the, the bites of the suture were, were much more evenly placed and what have you. And then at the end of that session, he said to the, that group of surgeons, well, actually, the videos were reversed. And so I'm wondering, you know, still, we're still kind of at the early phases of being able to analyze our, our technical performance. How do you kind of reconcile the fact that um, maybe we don't even know what makes things leak or what doesn't make things leak or what makes things go wrong? Or doesn't go wrong, uh, even if we have the video data to to, to watch.
2: Yeah, so uh, so so uh, that uh, again shows the complexity of uh, of uh, the the factors and interaction between factors that could um, contribute to a, to a, a adverse outcome. Uh, and uh, again, there are, there are a lot of factors here. There are there are. Uh, the patient factors, disease factors, there is post-operative management uh, uh, enhanced recovery or other things that, uh, that, uh, that where there is a significant variability in how we manage the patient post-operative. There is also the interoperative factors, which in addition to the, uh, the pure technical execution, there are a bunch of other things, was the patient hypotensive during the procedure or the patient hypothermic was the patient was how much blood loss there. So so there are tons of parameters there. So these are all I see that all small pieces of the whole puzzle that will show us why a a patient uh, uh, experienced a complication or an adverse outcome. So so only when we have all the pieces of the puzzle, uh, we will be able to build predictive algorithms about outcomes. I feel that we've, we're getting much closer to that. The, a lot of the previous work has looked at uh, risk calculators based on only patient factors or disease factors and use that to predict outcomes, but they, they don't take into account the interoperative factors or the postoperative management. There is some work looked around, especially around, after we introduced the enhanced recovery uh, that looked at the post-operative management uh, or other aspects of care uh, and their predictive value on, on outcomes, but they didn't take into account the interoperative factors. Now we have all of the pieces of the puzzle. And I think uh, uh, And it's very important to highlight that interoperative factors don't include only the technical execution of the anastomosis, you know, it, you can have a perfect anastomosis and all you know, the, the, the there could be the same anastomosis can uh, read to different outcomes if you did the if the procedure took you 7 hours and the patient had 2 liters of blood loss and was hypotensive for 25% of the time versus the same anastomosis in, in the patient that where the procedure took 45 minutes and the patient was followed all the principles of uh, hypothermia and wasn't hypoxic or or hypotensive so so again uh, uh, it, we will only be able to build reliable predictive algorithms if we have all these pieces of the puzzle. We will only be able to achieve, and really, I really believe in the future of surgery to be data driven, predictive, um, uh, transparent and ultra safe. And, and, uh, and I think we'll get to that point only if we study uh, the operating room holistically. And it hasn't been possible so far. And this is what we're trying to do with with introducing modern data capture and modern data science to surgery.
1: And um, can you talk a little bit about potentially how this might be incorporated into an M&M rounds? Because I think you had been doing this at St. Mike's to a certain extent.
2: Yeah, so uh, the, we call it enhanced m uh, and uh, this is one of the things that uh, Black Box is used for today uh, and uh, 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 groups or hospitals or departments that have access to the Black Box data uh, can log into their portal and run EMM uh, 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 sessions using uh, the Black Box, which breaks down the procedures into steps and sub steps it quantifies performance in each of these steps and identifies adverse events. So it identifies all these things that are outside the norm that could potentially have con- contributed to the to the um, uh, adverse outcome. Also, uh, with, uh, it's important to highlight that the or black box or the EM&M not only identifies uh, failures or things that could have done better, but it also identifies good things, the near miss, that was recognized by the team and, and was rectified so the patient still had a good outcome i think i think which kind of fuels the, the safety to approach that was introduced by a professor in denmark uh, eric holnagel who said uh, you know we we've, we've been doing quality improvement or safety improvement using this traditional reasons model and it, you know the 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 swiss cheese uh, image there uh, which which kind of occup- uh, uh, that focuses on the, the failure, the variability, the, the malfunction, the root cause, and so on. And he said, let's forget that. Really, it's so much more powerful to focus around uh, the good things. The near miss that was followed by mobilization of the of the team resilience that, that was followed by rec- uh, recognizing the, the the near miss by rectifying it. And all these things that we do as surgeons and as surgical teams, to despite variability, malfunction, and failure, to still achieve good clinical outcomes for our patients. So, so I think uh, uh, this, I think, is a much more powerful educational tool, much more powerful quality improvement tool. And this is one of the, the other principles that uh, we have adopted in uh, in the our black box and the M&M, uh to to identify these behaviors, to celebrate good behaviors, and uh, and find a good balance between uh, reducing uh, safety threats and enhancing resilience supports.
1: Dr. Grantroff, it has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today. Uh, I've, I've learned so much, and I'm so excited, honestly, for the future of surgery. It seems very, very bright, and uh, I just can't wait to see where you go next with the OR black box, if you could go back in time now, having had the experience with the OR black box your, your whole career, if you could go back in time to when you were a resident uh, or maybe even as an early attending, what advice would you have for a younger Dr. Grant <laughs> uh, I
2: that's um, that's a that's a, that, that's a great question. I probably would have um, I would have uh, probably used a little bit more uh, this uh, type of, uh, of philosophy, where we 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 look, at, uh, where I I, I would, uh, would would use more time to look in the mirror and focus on things to improve uh, rather than you know it's it's a natural feeling with surgeons to be confident and sometimes overly confident, and it's important in order to deliver great care. I think it's it's important to uh, to uh, maintain this humble feeling and uh, and again recognize the power of the team, the power of every that every single team member brings uh, to the team, and I think only then uh, uh, um, uh, we can we can uh, achieve the potential uh, of of this uh, or our maximum impact when we when we care for patients. So I think. I think throughout my work, throughout the years, it has made me more humble. It has shown me very clear uh, how important every single team member is and how important it is to make every single person in the room comfortable uh, uh, with each other. So uh, I I think this is something that uh, probably I learned throughout the years, but didn't fully recognize uh, in my early days where I felt that uh, that it's all, it's all about me. It's all about us as, as surgeons and everything is our responsibility. So I think, I think that's uh, kind of a uh, universally accepted today, uh, but probably wasn't like that uh, 15, 20 years ago when I started my career. You've been
1: listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. This podcast was edited and produced by Tyler Daniels. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback, so send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.